0: Hello and welcome to the Politics Home Podcast. I'm Matt Foster here for your weekly guide to whichever particular Commons defeat on Brexit Theresa May has suffered over the past seven days. Yep, Westminster's headline writers were gifted a Valentine's Day massacre this week as the PM took yet another drubbing at the hands of her restless Brexiteer backbenchers. Meanwhile, her top EU negotiator outed himself as a Brexit pub bore and a serving minister told his Eurosceptic colleagues to get lost and join another party. On the opposition benches, Labour continued to prove that the Tories don't have a monopoly on civil war, while Shadow <laughs> Chancellor John MacDonald even found time to have a pop at a national treasure. No, I'm not talking about the two people sat next to me. <laughs> Treasures in their own right, including <laughs> my editor, Kevin Schofield. Hello, Kevin. Hi, Matt. And joining us on the pod again is Anastasia Zavaruka. Hello. And I should say, actually, that Anastasia is the genius behind the Photoshop oh, uh, right, images yes. that go along with the... Podcast every week.
1: You're all very welcome.
0: Those troubling, <laughs> troubling images. Um, Anastasia heads up, Politics Home Central Lobby, which is where MPs, peers, businesses, charities, and other decision makers go to swap ideas and get stuff off their chest. A very warm welcome to the pod, AZ. Thank you very much. So, guys, let's start with the non stop party that was another highly technical <laughs> Brexit vote. Kevin, why did we get yet another Crunch Commons Brexit showdown this week? Um, well, you have to go back
2: a couple of weeks to the last big Brexit vote when MPs passed two amendments. Um, it gets, does get a bit technical, so I apologise for that in advance, but basically the, the two amendments that they passed two weeks ago were: was one to say, it was called the Brady Amendment, which was basically to replace the Irish backstop part of the Brexit deal with, quote, alternative arrangements. Um, And the other amendment said that Parliament does not support a no-deal Brexit. So the Prime Minister had said at that point that she would come back in two weeks' time, ideally with a deal to put to a meaningful vote or just another motion that MPs could amend and vote on just to basically get things off their chest and say what kind of Brexit they would like to see. So the motion that they put down said um, basically that Parliament accepts what the Commons agreed two weeks ago, which was these two amendments. That got Tory Brexiteers very, very angry because they think that no deal should still remain on the table. That should still be a possibility. And they say, well, hang on a minute. The Commons two weeks ago said that no deal should be taken off the table, so we're not going to support it. And even though they support the other part, the Brady Amendment, they supported that. But if you're still with me here, they support the other part. (laughs) Which you know, because they don't like the Irish backstop, but they don't support the other amendment about taking no deal off the table. So they said, right, well, unless you change the motion, they said to the government, we're not going to vote with you. And uh, the government said, well, we're not going to change the motion. Tough. And uh, the ERG, the European Research Group, um, hardline Tory Brexiteers, abstained. Labour voted against the government, and they lost by uh, was it fifty-five votes. So it was quite, a forty-five votes. So it was quite a chunky defeat, and just. Completely self-inflicted by the government. They didn't need to do that. You know, they they worded the motion badly. It was so avoidable. But all it's all it's done basically is send another message to Brussels
0: that the British Parliament is an absolute mess, and that no one can agree on anything. So is this going to substantively change anything in terms of how how Brexit plays out now? Or Was this more of a kind of symbolic? Yeah, it was an, it was a non-binding motion, so it doesn't
2: forced the government to do anything the the result last night and indeed Downing Street came out afterwards and said you know we're still going ahead with the plan which is to remove the back or change the backstop nothing has changed to use that old phrase um but you know technically they're correct but politically it's just another it's the 11th time the prime minister's been defeated on brexit which is just incredible really
1: 14 months right
2: yeah yeah i mean astonishing and um As I say, Brussels will be looking at it. You know, the thing that the way that um, Downing Street tried to yesterday afternoon try to make a last-ditch plea for Tory unity was to say, look, send a strong message to Brussels that this is what Parliament wants, and Parliament just turned around and gave the Prime Minister the middle finger and said no.
0: (laughs) And now Brussels have now got to try and make sense of it, and they must be as. As, as, the rest of us are. So, Az, did did this seem to you like the kind of, you know, the Tory party just reminding the Prime Minister that she's she's still on notice after what seemed like a bit of a truce a few weeks? Back?
1: Definitely. I mean, it's definitely the ERG kind of reminding her of that and saying, hey, you know, we still have you know a bit of control over this party and how this discussion should go. Um, yeah, and as Kevin said, they made the collective decision to abstain from the vote, so they basically just handed Corbyn a victory, um, which is a big slap in the face. Um, but then also there was the backlash against the backlash. So, <laughs> so you know, today or the other day, Richard Harrington, the business minister, told them to kind of go and join Farage's party, and um, you know, he wasn't impressed with the move. So it's
2: just it's just it's totally civil war. You're right. I mean, we were told that there was a truce that the Tories were finally united behind
0: a plan, and you know, the events of the last couple of days have shown that that's just not true. So, Ken, we, we we just touched on, um, uh, we mentioned Richard Harrington there, who, um, you know, is not he's not necessarily a household name, but he's been increasingly vocal about fears of a no-deal Brexit. You sat down and spoke to him for our sister title, The House Magazine, this week, and he had a pretty stark message for those Eurosceptics who are now kind of calling the shots in the party. Let's just have a little listen to what he said.
3: If I were in the ERG, it would give me, I think, a lot of pleasure to see us resigning. Yeah but we can't give in to a minority of a minority. Yeah.
2: So it's a case of staying in for as long as, as we possibly can.
3: can. And yeah. that would be my view. We can't give in to a minority of a minority, which is what the ERG are. Well, I mean,
2: obviously you're very strong views about the ERG. What, what do you think about the influence that they've now assumed within within the party? I mean, how, how damaging is that, do you think, for the conservative party? Well, we'll have to see. I
3: think the Prime Minister's done a pretty good job of standing up to them up to now, but they, are, they showed we they were drinking champagne to celebrate her losing her mm. deal by 200 votes, and I regard that as being treachery. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I read that Nigel Farage is setting up a new party called Brexit, um, and if I were them, I'd be looking at that because that seems to reflect their views more than the Conservative Party does.
2: So they'd be better off finding another well, that's party? that's for them,
3: but they should read carefully what that party's got to offer. Because in my view, they're not Conservative. And I don't mean all the members of the ERG, but I mean people who would... There are people who would prefer a hard deal yeah. to Theresa May's deal. So people like smog Marc-Francois... Exactly. I, anyone that's prepared to accept a compromise is fine for me. Kevin, how's that likely to go down with the uh, ERG? Uh,
0: like a like a broken lift. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean,
2: you got to remember that um, Richard Harrington is a Remainer. You know, he's been very vocal he said in the past that he will resign as a minister if. Um, uh, no deal becomes basically government policy. So, in a way, it's not surprising that he is so anti the ERG. But I think it was the the tone that he used and, and the language that he used. You know, telling them to go and join another party is pretty, and not and not just any other party. It's you know Nigel Farage's um, right wing party. You know, this new Brexit party. So um so yeah, it's uh, it's just another another piece of evidence that shows that the, that the Tories are completely at war with themselves. And um, yeah, I saw Ian Duncan-Smith, I think, was quoted in The Sun basically saying, oh, well, it's a bit rich to be lectured on loyalty by someone who's already threatened to resign as a minister unless he gets his own way, which, you know, I can understand where they come from. Put
0: it, put it this way, it's not it's not going to do anything to, to calm tensions within the Conservative Party, that's, that's for sure. Of course, all of this is taking place with, um, you know, just a few weeks left until that March 29th deadline. Um, AZ, how worried are kind of businesses at the moment about the idea we we basically could be hurtling towards a a no-deal Brexit?
1: Yeah, they're very worried. Um, I mean, we have less than 50 days to go. And um, just this week the British Commer- uh, Chambers of Commerce uh, demanded answers as to you know what's going to happen if no deal does take place. And there's a lot of very important questions that remain unanswered and they're essential to business operations. So they don't know what's going to happen with tariffs. They don't know um, what's gonna, if they'll be able to fly people or goods, um, inspection regimes, uh, mobile data roaming charges, visa restrictions, so all of these things are kind of essential to daily operations. And uncertainty is bad for business. Uh, Exporters who, for example, want to put their goods on a boat to go to the Far East, um, those goods aren't going to arrive for another six weeks, and they don't know when they do arrive exactly what the trading relationship is going to be. So, I mean, going forward, it's it's almost impossible for them to operate.
0: So this is already having kind of real-world impacts, the idea that we could, even a, the possibility, even though deal Brexit is, mm-hmm. is having an impact.
2: And we're not and we're not going to know, you know, where we go next until the end of the month, so that's another two weeks away. That's the next big showdown. The Prime Minister has basically said, we'll come back by the 27th of February. Ideally, again, with a deal. Probably not, though. So it'll be just be another... I think that'll be the real crunch point. Um, that'll be the moment when... You might see quite a lot of ministerial resignations. I think from ministers who don't want No Deal and are very, very frustrated that the prime minister appears at the moment
0: to be running the clock down and almost willing to have a No Deal. Um, Isie Ollie Robbins, the the prime minister's kind of top Brexit official, he's been leading negotiations on the civil service side. Pretty much put his foot in it this week. Um, what happened there?
1: Yeah, um, he bizarrely was caught discussing, you know, top Brexit policy plans uh, in the pub. Um, He was overheard in a Brussels bar saying that kind of MPs were going to be presented with the eve of the deadline choice between her deal or a very, very long delay. Um, Obviously, that goes completely against what the PM has said, saying that she would never contemplate postponing Brexit. Um, And additionally, he was also kind of overheard saying that the uh, Northern Ireland backstop was originally intended to be a bridge to a long-term relationship with the EU rather than a safety net. And that's obviously upset a lot of Brexiteers. Um, It's just kind of their worst nightmares kind of coming to fruition.
2: It was a fantastic scoop uh, for Angus Walker at ITV. He happened to be in, I think it was a hotel bar, wasn't it? Mm. It just happened to be the hotel that Angus was staying in out there covering Brexit, and Ollie Robbins was staying in the same um, hotel, and they went, he went for a drink, and there's Ollie Robbins, very loudly, opining, at the bar, and Angus, <laughs> you know, it's just it's your absolute dream as a journalist, you know, <laughs> Angus couldn't believe his luck, and uh, got this amazing scoop, which hasn't been denied by anyone, so clearly he was um,
0: quoting Ollie Robbins accurately. Um, guys, have you ever loudly divulged an international negotiating strategy down the pub?
1: Uh, I probably don't know any international negotiation strategies because I probably would divulge them down (laughs) at the
2: pub. I've certainly not done it in the last couple of
0: years. (laughs) It wasn't just the Tories throwing buns at each other this week, of course. Um, Labour decided to get in on the action, and um, there's now increasing chatter in Westminster about a a bunch of Jeremy Corbyn's disgruntled MPs quitting the party and forming a new centrist bloc. Um, Kevin, is this all about Brexit? Uh, at the moment, a lot
2: of it is about Brexit. It's very, very complicated, as these things always are. It, it's undeniable that there is there are rumours going around at Westminster that anything up to a dozen Labour MPs are preparing to resign the whip. Not necessarily to set up a new party, but just to sit as independents, um, free of the Labour whipping arrangements. Um, primarily because of Brexit. These are people who want a second referendum and are very frustrated that Jeremy Corbyn won't throw his weight behind one, so um, so I think that might be the trigger for some to go. Where it gets complicated, though, is that there are also moderates in the Labour Party who actually don't mind so much about Brexit. They might have voted Remain in the referendum, but now just think, look, let's go on with it. They maybe come from Leave voting constituencies. I'm thinking of somebody like Ian Austin, for instance. You know, he's certainly not pushing for a second referendum. He's voted, he voted for the Theresa May's deal a couple of weeks ago, but he's very angry about anti-Semitism. Um, and that has re-emerged again in the last couple of weeks. Uh, a lot of disquiet among Labour MPs about the way that the um, party leadership have handled the whole anti-Semitism controversy. So that could be another potential trigger. And there's, there's a bit of crossover there, so there's quite a lot of the MPs who want a second referendum but are also very unhappy about anti-Semitism. So there's a you know there's a, maybe a hardcore about as I say, 10 to 12, who fit into that camp, and they would, I think, would be the first wave almost to go but there's a suggestion that once some go others might use that as, as cover to go themselves so um yeah it's a very very febrile atmosphere i mean last night chuck had to deny that he was um that he was going to resign last night um there was this rumor went around i was sent it and you know I, when i saw the rumor i thought well yeah, I can I can see it. I mean, Chuka has made no secret of the fact he wants another referendum. He's made no secret of the fact he's not a fan of Jeremy Corbyn. So it would make perfect sense. So I think it was someone just trying to smoke him out. Um, so keep an eye on that one. That's what I would say. Uh,
0: and yeah, as I say, it's very very tense, febrile atmosphere, and it, it it could all blow literally at any moment. Of course, Momentum quickly put out a kind of uh, attack video. Um last night, aimed yeah. at Chucker. Um, do you think, you know, some people on Labour's left will just say, well, you know, good riddance, that's, we don't need you guys.
2: Well, lots and lots will, but I just think that's a really short-term um, strategy, really, short-sighted, I should say. I mean, they're, they're uh, yeah, I don't see how presenting a message to the voting public that Labour is at war with itself as, as, a, as, a, as an election-winning strategy... Um, Really, um, they should should be trying to broaden the tent, I think, rather than just um, chucking out anyone who doesn't doesn't, uh, agree 100% with Jeremy
0: Corbyn. Do you think a split's inevitable now?
2: I think it's inevitable that some will resign. Whether that then leads to an SDP-style centrist uh, new party, I don't know. I mean, it's difficult, as I say, because you've got these different... Elements you would have, I mean, presumably this new party would be a pro EU party, but then if you're a Labour MP who just thinks, let's go on with Brexit and move on to other things, why are you going to join that party? You know, so it's very, very difficult, I think, to see how a party would be able to encompass all the different kind of centre left um, points of view. So uh, I think resigning the whip, there'll be a few who will do that, I'm pretty sure of that, but whether it's a proper, as I say, new party. Um, standing in elections and stuff like that I think that's maybe a little bit further down the line
1: And moreover, as you say, it's probably going to end up being a single issue party as well, which historically you know, don't perform that well at the polls It yeah, have to be more than just anti one thing.
2: Well yeah, and I also once we've left the EU are they going to have be like a let's rejoin party? <laughs> yeah. I mean I just that I think would be just political suicide I don't think, as much as a lot of people are very angry about Brexit the idea then that they would um, vote for a, a party that which wants to take us back in that doesn't necessarily follow. The voting system we've got is yeah. designed for two parties, first past the post. You yeah know, that is designed for two major parties and that is what leads to somebody like Jacob Rees-Mogg being in the same party as Anna Subri, you know when they are just at opposite ends pretty much the political certainly of like the conservative political spectrum. and also you've got, as I say Muna in the same party as John McDonnell or Chris Williamson. I mean, it's just, I mean, in a PR system, and I'm not certainly not proposing a PR system, but that in that type of system, you would have multiple parties each um, encompassing people with those separate views, whereas because of it's first-past-the-post here, they've all got to basically choose a side between Labour and Tory and stick with it, and you're seeing now how those tensions are basically being stretched to breaking point.
0: Um, sorry, AZ touched on the idea of, um, you know, all the parties having kind of mixed messages at the minute on Brexit. And that, that was exactly what Clive Lewis, a, a Labour frontbencher, said at an event in, in Westminster today about Labour's, uh, yesterday about Labour's Brexit position. Um, is, is Jeremy Corbyn coming under pressure from the left as well on, on Brexit? Because we often hear about that kind of, you know, the centrist block and, and, and the right of the party. Yeah, I mean, Clive Lewis has been very vocal I and mean,
2: Clive on every other issue really is completely uh, at one with Jeremy Corbyn when it comes to Brexit, he's already designed once. Over Brexit, he's back on the front bench again, and as you say, he was very outspoken yesterday. Um there is a bit of that. It's not as um, pronounced I think as from the as it is from the moderate wing of the party. the, the left are, I guess, are instinctively less likely to criticise Jeremy. But I think that is that means that when they do, it's actually much more powerful. Uh, and yeah, I mean it was an interesting analysis I thought yesterday from from Clive and he he was saying as you say the Lib Dem, look what happened to them after the coalition. Labour could go the same way. There's been one poll I think I've seen that if Labour in some way are the handmaidens of Brexit that they could fall below the Lib Dems at the next election. Who knows, I mean I think come the next election Brexit will hopefully be behind us and we will be able to move on to other things and I think that is when uh,
0: politics will sort of return to normal and that might actually work to Labour's advantage. Now, long-term listeners of the podcast will know that we always like to talk about industrial disputes that took place in 1910. So, um, <laughs> let's talk about John Macdonald's comments on uh, Winston Churchill. Az, you were at the event where he made some pretty contentious remarks about, about uh, you know Britain's wartime prime minister. Um, what did he say, and kind of how did the remarks go down in the room at that political event?
1: Right, uh, so it was at the end of a very long event that um, kind of was a long form, lovely conversation. Everyone was getting along and then at, very much at the end, they kind of threw in the classic, all right, yes or no kind of answers. And um, as they were going through these, uh, some were, oh, who's your favorite Tory MP? And McDonald refused to answer. And after a few refusing the answers, he finally got hit with, um, is Churchill a villain or a hero? And we actually in the room didn't really understand what he said. Uh, We heard him mutter something and then say Tony Pandy. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I actually didn't know who Tony Pandy was or what that (laughs) meant. Um, So I think we all kind of moved on from that. Um, Fortunately it was recorded and I think people picked up on it from the live stream and uh, yeah so pretty much he said that he thinks Churchill is a villain Um, however he wasn't really given much of a choice he either had to say he was the hero greatest hero of our times or the ultimate villain and I think that's a little bit unfair. I agree (laughs) that
2: was exactly the point I was was going to make I think you know we're we're now in a a world where everything's black and white in terms of politics so you know Good guy, bad guy. You know, you only got to go on social media to see if you don't agree with someone, they think you're evil. Mm. So I think it's it's unfair. I mean, if you can understand from a journalistic point of view, it was a good story, and it's always good to make politicians uncomfortable with awkward questions. Um, so yeah, hero or villain, but it's complex. And what John McDonnell should have done instead of just given a, essentially a one-word answer, he should have he should have said that. Well, you know, yeah, I can't. You can't say hero or villain. It's it's complex. Where yeah. He did a lot of bad things, but you know, he helped us defeat fascism. So um, yeah. you've got to take it in the round. He's neither a hero or a villain as such. There's heroic elements, but there's also villainous elements, and it's you know, it's not. It's you can't boil it down to a one-word answer. But it
1: really speaks to the current kind of cult of identity politics. Yeah, where now we're going through historical figures, and we're deciding are they were they on our side or were they against us? which is just not a realistic way to approach the world. And I think it just speaks even more to the fact that we've kind of developed a rhetoric that doesn't allow us to have nuanced debate.
2: No. I mean, what he was talking about, he said, Tony Pandey, which was when he was Home Secretary in 1910, that you alluded to, he sent in the troops to break a miners' strike and the two miners got shot dead. And clearly that was a terrible thing, um, which would not happen nowadays, you like to think. So that was bad. And there were other things that he did... Um, which I won't go into now, which were also bad. But then ultimately, you know, he did lead the country to victory in the Second World War. So, you know, as I say, it's impossible to, to boil it down to a one word answer.
1: But on the flip side, it does say something about John MacDonald as a politician, because as yeah. you said, you know, uh, probably a better response would have been, you know, I'm just, I'm not gonna answer that one or good try, but next time. And because he couldn't resist taking a shot at Churchill, just because he knew that that was just something that would entertain people. And it plays um, to the base. Uh, plays to his base, base, exactly. So, so yeah, that right. speaks to who he is and the kind of decisions that he makes, and you know who he's um, not afraid of offending. Yeah. And uh, kind of how he wants to be represented and seen.
2: He's been very good since he became shadow chancellor at painting this image of you know kindly old Uncle John, you know, the nation's bank manager and all that. And people who know him, or who know of his history, know that there's a dark side to John MacDonald, which before he joined the Labour front
0: bench he didn't try to hide. Now he does but occasionally the mask slips. Do you think the um, the fact we all got very animated about this is a sign we're just sick of talking about <laughs> trade tariffs and, and Brexit amendments? Absolutely.
1: It's so easy. I mean, it's it just, a, it just it journalist candy. <laughs> it was
2: a relief to talk about something else. Even if it was a Industrial action from over a hundred years
0: ago. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take on a few questions from our listeners. Um, This is one from Tash Clark. Tash is a uh, politics reporter for The Sun, former poll homer herself. Um, What is your Brexit panic snack of choice? I don't know whether this is like No Deal Brexit stockpiling or just when you're covering Brexit stuff. Or just nice comfort foods. Yeah. What What gets you through life? And you well, know, I love if it's a sweet thing. I love
2: uh, a picnic bar with a cup of tea. You Ooh. know, those picnic oh, bars. Yeah. You get them. You know, a picnic bar. It's like um, it's well, it's chocolate, obviously, <laughs> and there's a bit of wafer, some raisins in there, a of nuts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe it might mean some caramel. God, they're magic. Wow, I love that. Uh, fruit and nut chocolate as well. So I guess if I was like up against it on the 29th of March and it's looking like an Odile Brexit, I'd be mainlining (laughs) fruit and nut, Cadbury's fruit and nut. Isaiah? Me?
0: Yeah. I'm
1: just on strong coffee, just constant How American, very American. Yeah, I want to stay constantly shaky (laughs) and just adrenaline driven.
0: Just just powering your way through it. (laughs) Um, We've got another question from Vicky Wong. Now, Vicky also used to be a poll home reporter. so We've, re- we've really yeah, branched so out, and broadened our, our listener base here. Um, Vicky asks, um, how many pro Brexit MPs do you think would take up Richard Harrington's suggestion of defecting to Farage's new party? Uh, none. It would
2: be if I was to round it down. <laughs> uh, I'd say zero. Because as far as they're concerned, they are true conservatives. I mean, in that interview, uh, Richard Harrington says, you know, they're not conservatives you know, they are traitors, Um, but they would argue that they are conservatives and that all they're doing is implementing the Tory manifesto from the last election which said no, we shouldn't be in a customs union, Uh, and that, you know, the people of the country voted to leave the EU, so that's what they're trying to implement, so they, I'm pretty sure, are not going to take Richard Harrington up on his kind offer for them to get lost and
0: join Nigel Farage's party. We have just got time now for you guys to choose what is always increasingly difficult at the moment, um, your weirdest <laughs> stories of the week. So, um, Kevin, what have you gone for? Uh, well, on the same theme,
2: really, of have just been glad not to have to talk about Brexit. Um, the Daily Mail had a great, great story uh, out of uh, Cabinet this week, where I'm not entirely sure of the context, but Theresa May decided to tell Cabinet that she likes to... If she opens a jar of jam and there's mould there, rather than chuck out the whole jar, she scrapes off the mould and eats and eats the rest of it. Which yeah. I can empathise with. I have to I say, just, I'm definitely. I think my mother does that. So then it became a yeah. like, then it became a debate of are you a scraper or a chucker? <laughs> so I'm definitely a scraper. You know, unless, unless it's like completely covered in it. Obviously, I draw the line at that. But if it's just a little bit of mould. Mm. Uh, and the kids haven't noticed because they wouldn't touch it, but you just scoop it off and eat the rest. It's completely fine. So, I mean, it's
1: supposed to be good for you, mold. It's supposed to have some kind of health really? benefits. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's, not, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go that
0: far as to spread the mold on my <laughs> toast. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's
1: just like blue cheese, it's fine. Yes, of course, yeah.
0: AZ recommends the coffee and mold <laughs> diet. <laughs> um, AZ, what was your weirdest story? you You, you were. You had a massive campaign victory, didn't you?
1: Yeah, yeah, no. Um, This week was a really bizarre one for me, which was... uh, I I was on YouTube, I think, just trying to figure out how to paint my walls in my living room better. Um, And a targeted ad came up, and it was a big image of Theresa May basically as, like, just a, a sexualized cartoon. And it said, her deal or your deal. And it was done by Capital One, and they were promoting making Brexit a success for you. Right. Um, But the image was so striking. It was Theresa May with her cleavage up to her chin, her lips, you know, three times the size of normal. She was winking at the camera. Some people said it looked like she had a black eye, Um, but it was really jarring. So I took a screenshot of that, put it on Twitter, obviously. Um, And the the general reactions were, I would say, 101% negative. People were really upset, um, shared it a lot. Um, I don't think I want to see another vomiting gif again in my life. (laughs) Um, But yeah, people were either, they were upset generally just because the image in and of itself is disturbing, but obviously everyday sexism, Why is the Prime Minister being put as a pinup girl to attract, I mean, people to make profits off of the pound, you know, fluctuating? It's a bit bizarre. And it got taken down. Um, Yeah, so I think the Mail Online called the company and said, hey, uh, what's going on here? And they said, oh my God, who made this? We don't know. It's not reflective of our culture. So they took it down, obviously. Excellent. Um, But yeah, it was bizarre. I I never want to see anything like it again.
0: And your your tweet ended up in the Daily Mail story, didn't it? So yeah. you, Well, yeah, <laughs> you were like yeah, leading the yeah. charge on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they credited the the social media action as um, yeah being the force to take it down, but um, also they didn't really credit me. They credited Anastasia Zah. Okay. So they, they missed out about eight letters on my last name there, but that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it as a victory. Um, yeah, it's a good time.
0: On, on that triumphant note, we'll have to uh, bring this week's podcast to a close. Thank you very much for listening, guys. If you want to keep in touch with um, all the latest happenings in Westminster, you can sign up to our breakfast briefing email. That's free. It goes out seven days a week, and you sign up at politicshome.com forward slash register. See you next week.